Hi everyone, I'm Jason Scors and welcome to another episode of Dispatch from the Zombie Apocalypse. Hope everybody is doing okay. Tough times all around. Not a not a lot on the macro societal scene to be super psyched for, I guess, except that there is now widespread condemnation of police brutality and racism. And the protest movements are pretty strong. Um, Obviously, the federal response by the Trump administration has been despicable and a disgrace. Republicans largely silent. Um, but, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's some good and there's some silver linings in there. And I want to talk a little bit about that today. You know, the title of today's episode is One White Dude's Thoughts on Racism and Justice in 2020. And, uh, that's all this will be, you know. I am just one voice here, but I think I have some life experience and some thoughts here that might be useful for you all and good to kind of instigate some conversation and some thinking on these very important topics that are not going to go away anytime soon. So I'd like to start this by talking a little bit about my upbringing because my upbringing is pretty unique, especially in the American context. I grew up in New York in the 1970s and 80s, born 1969. Uh, New York at that time was pretty rough and tumble. It was not, you know, Iraq war zone tough, but it was not the New York of today, which is basically a playground for the rich and very safe and clean. It was pretty much the opposite. I like to joke that New York was kind of like Gotham City, and it's no surprised that all the times they uh, have Gotham City in the movies, it is New York because New York was really like that. And so it was Central Park was dangerous. Uh, You didn't go in there very often after night, even during the day, uh, you know, could be pretty dangerous. There were dead bodies in it. There was a lot of drug use. There was gang violence. There was a lot of rape and murder. Um, You know, the, the city itself was pretty run down, a lot of burned out buildings and a lot of just, it was just dirty and a lot of refuse everywhere from used syringes to crack vials to used condoms. It was pretty nasty. Uh, You know, 42nd Street Times Square was not the playground of Disneyland and, you know, and uh, movie theaters. It was drug addicts, you know, pornography and prostitution it was pretty seedy and pretty nasty. I mean, I think, you know, the, the Deuce or 40 Deuce, the TV show, uh, was kind of about that time. Um, so, you know, but in all that, I was a kid and I didn't know any better, right? I didn't know that there was other life outside of New York that was better or worse. I pretty much thought this was just how reality was. And I grew up in the Upper West Side, which at the time and still to this day, was very mixed. My building was probably half black and Puerto Rican or even more. 
I went to public schools that were 70 to 90% black and Puerto Rican. So I was in the minority uh, in terms of kind of racial and skin color in many of the contexts that I spent time at. And I got fucked with a lot, right? I got mugged. I got robbed. I got, you know, I got bullied by mostly black and Puerto Rican kids for most of my upbringing. And interestingly, I think about this a lot. I did not have a racial lens that I saw this kind of, you know, this bullying and this kind of oppression on the the small scale that I was experiencing through a racial lens. And if anything, I realized that the people, the black and Puerto Rican kids who were messing with me, I realized that they were doing it out of a sense of disempowerment, not it wasn't the powerful picking on the powerless, which is in this society what white supremacy is. And again, powerless and powerful are a little too 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 strong a words, but you know, the dominant um, you know, oppressing the minority. I realized that the black and Puerto Rican kids who were messing with me, they were messing with me because I represented something that they didn't have, and there was a resentment. And so I just knew that even though I, I grew up in one step up from the projects, I wasn't in the projects. And even though I didn't have, you know, I was in a public school with them, you know, I had a nicer home to go home to. And my parents, we took vacations, you know, in the summer and went out to the beach or to the country. And most of these kids did not. So it's interesting. I just didn't, there wasn't a, a strong racial lens. I, I, I saw it more through a kind of a class lens than a racial lens. And this proceeded into high school. I went to a very prestigious public high school that was a specialized, very hard to get into. Um, and my crew there was a United Nations poster. I mean, I had friends from every racial ethnic group. And, you know, it was a pretty amazing moment. And even then, when, you know, when you're out in the streets in New York at two in the morning in the 1970s you know, and early 80s, you know, when things went down, it wasn't, you know, who's white, who's black. It was who knows what time it is and who, you know, has some street sense here. So even then, I didn't see things through a racial lens. Now, that all changed when I went to college. I went to college out in California where I still live. And then everything I learned was through a racial lens. And and this kind of might have been naivete or kind of racial, um, you know, yeah, I think racial naivete is probably the way to say it. It ended. And then from when I was 19 on, when I saw people walking down the streets, that racial filter clicked in and I would scan people and say, oh, that's some black kids. Those are some Asian kids. Those are some white kids. And I lost that kind of almost innocence, racial innocence. Now, I want to be clear here that racial innocence was a form of white privilege because I'm sure the black and brown friends of mine didn't have that innocence because being black and brown in New York City came with certain liabilities that I didn't have. So anyway, that's just by by way of saying it's sad, but in America, most people don't have black and brown friends. Most people have never dated someone from another race, and, and I had all of that, and so I had a very special upbringing. Moving forward, I hate segregated communities of any type. 
You know, where I live now is pretty white and it drives me out of my fucking mind. You know, I need to go to New York City. I need to travel because I hate being in all white communities. But on the on the flip side, I hate being in all black communities for too long or all Asian communities for too long. I like diversity. I don't like segregated tribal communities. Right. And I really do hope that we live in a world one day where skin color is as important as hair color. Right. Because no one goes, oh, man, those are, you know, look at all those black haired people over there, all those blonde haired people over there and make categorizations with them. And, and we I do hope that skin color becomes no different than that one day. But we are a long way from that as the protests that we're seeing are clearly an indication. Racism and white supremacy are very strong in America, even in 2020. And one of the reasons that I mentioned this in previous episodes is America has not even apologized for white supremacy, for slavery, for the genocide of Native Americans. And so if you can't even accept some guilt and show show remorse for the evil that you have done, it's very hard to evolve. And I'm going to come back to this. You know, we see this now in the fight over Confederate statues, right? It's in 2020 in America, and there are some fucking losers in this country who still want us to honor the traitors and slaveholding states that they represented. I mean, think about that. That's just how sad that is, that we have so moved on so little that we're still fighting over monuments to traitors and slaveholders in the year 2020. Even more kind of, I think, scandalous is... Many, many black children go to a Jefferson Davis high school throughout the country. You know, that would be the equivalent of a Jew going to Adolf Hitler high school. And so we would think that's abhorrent, but we don't bat an eye that I think to my knowledge, if not tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of black kids go to Jefferson Davis high school. Again, the equivalent of Adolf Hitler high school. And let's go even, you know, I don't like just being reactionary. We shouldn't just be against, you know, Jefferson Davis being the name of a high school or Confederate monuments. Where are our monuments to the slaves and the abolitionists, right? Let's, we should have tons of monuments to them, right? To the people we oppressed and to the people who fought that oppression. And yet here we are fighting over monuments to the oppressors themselves, right? So my point here is, if you don't do reconciliation, it's very hard for the culture to move forward. You can have all the laws you want on the books, but if you don't do deep reconciliation like Germany did, like South Africa did, like Rwanda did, uh, it's very hard to progress as a society. So I think step one is simply admitting our true history, admitting white privilege, and saying we're sorry. Right, like apologizing deeply and heartfelt, looking black America, looking at Native American people and saying, we are deeply sorry for what we did to you. And we haven't even done that. And that's the absolute minimum, right? That is absolute building block step one for building a truly just and less racist or anti-racist society. So after the break and later on in this episode, I'll talk more about the policy change in the system that I think we need 
to you know remedy a lot of the racial wrongs. But next up, I think it's worth talking about the conservative response because it's 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 quite despicable and just wrong historically and wrong morally. So that's next up after the break. Sorry. Okay, so the conservative response to a lot of what's going on. Well, as usual, most conservatives are full of shit on racial issues and justice issues. We see this from the president on down. All this, you know, talk about how, you know, the violent protesters and the looting and the Antifa. And most of that is just bullshit, right? Fact, Antifa has never killed anybody. I'm not saying that there aren't nut jobs in Antifa and that they don't do some bad things. They do. I am happy to admit that. But they don't kill people. And yet right-wing white racist terrorists do kill some people. And in fact, they kill many people. That's where the focus should be if we're serious about dealing with racial injustice. Uh, It's the cops that are killing people, including many white people who die uh, needlessly at the hands of cops. I'm I'm recording this on, you know, Tuesday, June 16th, and, uh, you know, some white racists in New Mexico shot a protester, these, you know, white white terrorist militia nut jobs, and, um, and, you know, one of them has been arrested. So again, pointing the finger at, you know, Antifa is just a distraction away from the truth, which is that, you know, white right-wing militias are the biggest threat. Another one on that, you know, my neighbor up in the Santa Cruz Mountains, uh, he he killed a cop here in Santa Cruz, and it looks like he's implicated in killing another cop in in Oakland. And, you know, FBI is crawling around this small, sleepy little dirt roads of the Santa Cruz Mountains, and the right wing wanted to pin it on, you know, Antifa and, li- and liberals. Turns out that's wrong. This guy was one of these boogaloo boy right wingers and he wrote in in blood on a car you know boogaloo or boog or whatever but you know and and i think it was even it was his blood or the cops blood so this is this is the 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 source of it is the right wingers i'm not saying there's never been any left wingers who do violence but right now it's clearly the right wing and yet trump and his evil minions are trying to distract from the facts but let's even go deeper here a lot of right wingers are trying to you know whip up hysteria and get white people scared about how you know black people are looting again most of this is peaceful protest and a lot of the looting and destruction is being done or instigated by right wingers now again there are some black and brown people doing criminal activity i'm never going to deny that that's part of it but that's not the thrust of what's going on a lot of conservatives are saying why can't you be like martin luther king and peaceful protest So let's just quash that right away. Let's look at how white society treated Martin Luther King. He was hated. He was vilified. They tried to kill him multiple times. The FBI at the highest levels 
thought he was a threat to society. They bugged him. They sent people in to misinform him and to try to trip him up and entrap him. And then a white racist killed him. Going to the next step, Ronald Reagan, St. Reagan of the conservatives, opposed the holiday for Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday, right? Um, he then did a big campaign rally on the site of the massacre of civil rights workers in Mississippi, right? So again, the right wing has been on the wrong side of history, conservatives, Republicans, since day one and to this day. So they treated Martin Luther King Jr. like shit. And so saying, oh, you guys should be peaceful like Martin Luther King Jr. Well, that's just hypocrisy of the highest order, right? Then look, Fox News talking about Trump talking about law and order is like Al-Qaeda talking about human rights. Trump is a career criminal. He is a traitor, right? He he sold out our country to, to, to Russians many times and also to Ukraine. He was trying to sell, you know, get dirt on Ukraine, I mean, on Biden through Ukraine and, and hold up aid, right? So C- Trump is a career criminal. How can a career criminal talk about law and order? What law and order means to Trump and the Fox News crew is white supremacy, and crushing and suppressing black and brown voices. So again, that's all bullshit. But let's go to another level. Let's look at Colin Kaepernick, right? Trump went crazy when Colin Kaepernick took the knee and he was tweeting about it, about how horrible it is and that they should, you know, suppress him. And they did, right? So Colin Kaepernick, who had been in the Super Bowl, who had risen to the highest levels of the game, was blacklisted and his career ruined. With, you know, and if you think about that in monetary terms, that was tens of millions of dollars stolen from him. Let's just flip this around. Let's imagine if Tom Brady had taken a knee for something and Barack Obama had tweeted about how horrible it was and gotten the NFL owners to ban Tom Brady from the game. Can you imagine the uproar in white America, a black president taking away, you know, the the, the the money and the livelihood of a famous white athlete, they would have been apoplectic up in arms. But what did the conservative movement do? They got behind it, right? Nobody, it's crickets. And the NFL is a hotbed of racism and white supremacy, and they all got behind it, right? So again, it's all bullshit, all hypocrisy, pretty much all the time. Are there a few conservative commentators out there saying a few sensible things? Yes, but the movement is still steeped in white supremacy. Their leader, Donald Trump, is a racist in white supremacy, and they have blood on their hands from the deaths that are, you know, the COVID deaths that are disproportionately black and brown with this rush to reopen, with this rush to support um, Trump and not impeach him and allow this con man idiot to be, you know, the the leader of the national response, which at this point we've basically given up, right? There is no national response. We to this day there's no national plan. So again, it they try to deflect blame and lie, but on on racial justice issues, if you want progress, do not look to the conservative movement because again, basically what they they do, what their whole thing is, scare old white people um, so that the plutocrats can run to the bank. Um, and let's, um, let's go to the next level. You know, the, you know, the, the Obama administration had done a lot of studies of black, um, communities and the policing. 
And, you know, one the big one in Ferguson after the, you know, the de death of Michael Brown there, they found that basically the police department in Ferguson was treating the black community there like colonial subjects, just shaking them down and exploiting them uh, for, for money, right? So again, rolling up on people for, you know, maybe, you know, going through a, a stop sign a little, uh, you know, a, a little too quick. Or, you know, having a parking ticket that's unpaid and then shaking them down more and more so they become so indebted that they then take them to jail. Then they shake down their family and friends for the fines to get them out of jail. This is stuff that just does not happen in white communities. Imagine that. Imagine if a poor white community was being shaken down by a black police department and just oppressing them, throwing them in jail for parking tickets, shaking these poor people down for thousands of dollars, hitting up their cousins and their nephews and their godparents, right? You would, if this was, if that was in America, Fox News would be calling for armed fucking revolution. I mean, guaranteed, right? So again, you know, they glorify violence when it's white grievance, when it's the militia movement or the Second Amer Amendment rep remedies, but they condemn violence when it's black and brown people who are fed up with racism and systemic oppression, right? If anything, what's so remarkable about America is how peaceful black and brown people have been and are most of the time given the violence and oppression that they have faced. And again, it's just a guarantee that if white people were facing these levels of oppression, Fox News and the conservative movement would be absolutely promoting and supporting an instigated violent revolution. Because that's what we're going to do in a couple weeks, right? July 4th, we're going to blow shit up, blow up fireworks, blow shit up to, to, um, you know, to celebrate our revolution and our independence when we fought against oppression. We love glorifying white violence, but we condemn black violence. And the violence against black people has been orders of magnitude more than the violence against white people in this society, right? So the conservative movement, as in most things, are hypocrites and liars and cheats, and they're full of shit. So we can move on from them. And uh, we can get to the real solutions, which will have to come from the left uh, after the break. If you don't like my fire, then don't come around. Because I'm going to burn one down. Because I'm going to burn one down. Okay, so real solutions here. The first thing I want to point out, though, because I just spent you know many minutes railing against conservatives and Republicans, and I'm a reality-based person. I don't, I'm not partisan to, to ideologies of clubs and tribalism. I'm partisan to facts, reality, solutions, and issues. So the criminal reform bill that was passed in a bipartisan manner a couple years back and that President Trump signed was actually a decent, good faith effort by the right to solve some of these issues. So I want to make good on my promise to reward good behavior. So now, again, I think most of the conservatives did this because it could save money. So it wasn't done for the justice issues and for the moral issues. It was, hey, 
prisons are expensive and if we can get some you know nonviolent offenders out and save some money um, that's a good thing and that's fiscally conservative so again even though I don't think it was done for the right reasons the end of the day I care about outcomes and output and that was a good faith bill that went a little you know 25 percent of the way about righting some wrongs. So I do want to make for the record that that was a good thing. And so again, even if conservatives and even if the Trump administration is wrong nine out of 10 times, they were right on that and they did a good thing there. And I will applaud them for that. Now, moving forward, when we look at police violence and racism, clearly the issue is not good apples and bad apples, right? It's systemic. We have systemic problems of racist policing but even more than that, it's the over-militarized and violent policing, right? And I want to be clear here. This kills a lot more than black and brown people, right? In fact, m- more white people die at the hands of police than black people. Now, it's still disproportionate to, the, to their numbers, right? Black and brown people, I think, die at the hands of police greater than their proportion in society, and white people die less than their proportion in society, but still in absolute numbers, there's a lot of white people dying at the hands of the police. A lot of this has to do with the war on drugs, right? A lot of this is just the over-militarization and violence inflicted on drug dealers, drug users, drug production, and a lot of this is nonviolent, even if drugs have negative impacts on people. The actual behavior that's being stopped and being um, oppressed by the police is is nonviolent behavior. Also, a lot of this has to do with police unions. Police unions have become a hotbed of just the most racist, violent, and unaccountable forces of the police. Now, this is interesting because the left is generally pro-union, right? We want to increase unions. What we have to point out that police unions are really a a source of the problem. And so this is where the left has to say we can't love all unions if unions are a a hotbed of racism and uh, a lack of accountability. Now, I also want to point out that there are many weak and cowardly Democratic politicians at the local and state levels because a lot of policing is not, you you know, really a federal issue. And let's look where some of the most racist police are, whether it's New York City, where I come from, LA, or again, Minneapolis, where George Floyd was killed. These are hardcore blue democratic cities, and they have very, very racist policing and very brutal policing. Because again, it's much more than racism. It's just police brutality writ large. So I think We as Democrats and liberals have to take responsibility that some of our most racist policing is in really strong Democratic cities. And that's just a disgrace. That's not acceptable. But the federal government does have a role to play, even if they're probably at the end of the day not as strong as the local factors that, again, mayors and state legislatures and city councils are much more responsible. Now, again, I'm no expert on police brutality and police violence. But I do know, looking at the data, that small incremental reforms are not going to be sufficient to the task. The level of brutality, the level of oppression, the lack of accountability in the police forces across the United States require more than small bore solutions. 
Now, defunding the police is just horrible politics. And even if some of it is right on substance, which I will talk about, we need better messaging. All right. The last thing we want to do is to get the Fox News right wing nut jobs frothing at the mouth, scaring old white people that liberals just want anarchy and want to, you know, take away all the money from the police. Right. Not good messaging. We on the left can and must do better. So what does defunding the police mean in substance where it might have some truth is shifting funding that goes to the militarized, violent, gun-carrying aspects of the police and shifting it to mental health, to community development, to after-school programs, having still a core of police with guns who have the right to use violence but only focused on that narrow band of, of violent criminals. Many people have pointed out, why are traffic cops carrying guns and getting violent training. Can't we have either technology or traffic people who are unarmed to just come and say, hey, you were speeding, you're getting a speeding ticket. But even better yet, just let's just do this with you know sensors and cameras that just see people speeding and they send it to them in the mail and they say, hey, here's what you were doing. We clocked you out here. Here's a picture. Here's your license plate. We're using technology um, that works. And you got to pay the ticket, right? Beyond policing, we have inherent economic inequalities, especially in wealth, that must be addressed, which are at the, the heart of a lot of the brutal realities for black and brown people in the United States. White wealth in the United States is 10 times black wealth, right? So the average, the median, you know, white family, I think, has about 170K in wealth, and the median black family has 17k in wealth how are we going to have a fair just society when white people have 10x the wealth of blacks now policies to close this wealth gap are needed i don't necessarily think they need to come in the form of reparations right i think reparations are probably morally just in fact i'll say more than that they are morally just the, the, the violence done to black families for centuries up until very recently and up until the present day, not just before, up until the Civil War, have harmed black wealth to such an extent that reparations are probably and uh, significantly warranted. But I think it's bad policy because we can have universal economic policies to increase wealth that will disproportionately help black people help black and brown families increase their wealth and but it will also help some other ethnic groups in native americans and even poor whites in appalachia that have been really you know jerked over for decades or even centuries cory booker has some really good ideas on this some of these things are the baby bonds where low-income people when they are have children their children will get bonds uh, and get money that will the government will hold for them that they will get when they're 18 to help them build wealth. And again, if you put these in a progressive fashion, these will disproportionately, overwhelmingly hurt, hurt, um, help black people because black people are starting from such a low percentage of wealth. And I think these are just absolutely the type of policies that must be part of you know the, the, the democratic uh, platform going forward. So after the break, I'll come back with some final antidotes. 
uh, to wrap things up on a, you know, on a hopeful note as best I can. Set your mind free as I slam these thoughts And just like a jenny goes by You're gonna see what I'm saying now You can't be sleeping Cause things are getting crazy You better stop being lazy There's many people fronting And many brothers dropping All because of dumb things Let me tell you something I've been through so much That I'm such a maniac But I still act out of faith That we can get the shit together So I break Our fools with no rhyme skills Messing up the flow And people with no sense Who be moving much too slow And so You will know the meaning of the gangsta Guru with the mic and Okay, so now to the antidotes. So racism is is as old as humanity, right? It's been around forever, but that doesn't mean it always has to be with us. It's going to take a long time to really get racism out of the systems, out of the, the core, you know, policies and structures in our our legal system, our court system, uh, in our local and state politics, and then from deep within our culture to help purge ourselves of our worst instincts. And again, a lot of that will have to do with the reconciliation. Now, people do change. I want to point out that in the 1920s, when the Ku Klux Klan was at its peak in America, The KKK warned of Jews and Catholics taking over America. And here we are in 2020, and the five right-wing justices are all Catholics. Jews are, uh, you know, at high levels of American society in the legal system, in the finance system, in the entertainment industry, right? That Jews are a big, powerful part of American culture. So what the KKK warned us of has come to pass and for the most part has been very good, right? The fact that Catholics are at high levels of government, even if the right-wing justices in the Supreme Court, I I think, are are wrong on 9 out of 10 issues. It's great that Catholics are at high levels of power and nobody really bats an eye and thinks it's a horrible thing that Catholics have power. It's a good thing. It's a good thing that Jewish people have power and for the most part we don't bat an eye, right? There's some nut jobs on, on mostly on the right who talk about, you know, Jews controlling the world and all that. But for the most part, 9 out of 10 Americans really doesn't bat an eye when they go to the movies, even though most of those movies were, you know, made by Jewish companies and Jewish creative talent. Nobody who's you know putting their money in the stock market is worried that much of the finance industry is controlled and and run by Jewish individuals and Jewish firms, right? This is just part of the fabric of America and what the KKK warned about. Nobody really bats an eye about at except again fringe groups. Now again, the fact that these dominant groups are in in power means that other groups that are in the minority that are that are have racist policies against them are likely to be in the mainstream in the years and decades to come right so this is all good we see that people can change we should all recognize that we have racial biases of our own and that that when they creep up in our thinking this should be a moment for us to confront them and interrogate them. If we see a group or we realize that we have a, you know, 
uh, a negative thought towards somebody, if it's a doctor or a dentist or somebody in our workplace that when we see them, their color of their skin or their accent, or we know what religion they come from or don't, you know, or we realize that they, you know, that they have, they come from a minority group that we have a, a, a negative feeling to or even just a negative impulse towards, we should try to understand why is that? Why am I having a negative impulse or a negative feeling or a feeling of disgust or distrust for a group for no really rational reason? Where is that coming from? Where has that come from in my upbringing? Where has that come from in my you know, cultural awareness? And just try to understand it and recognize that nobody here is pure, right? I'm, not, I'm sure I have said racist things. I am sure I have said sexist and homophobic and, and oppressive things at some point in my upbringing because there were just a lot of negative energies flowing around that I got from all kinds of people. And, 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 and it's, it's okay to acknowledge that. Nobody is perfect here, right? Also, while I don't think it's necessary for people to go out of their way to make friends with people of every different skin color and religion just for the sake of it, I think it does matter to actually have people close to you in your life from a, a, a diverse group of backgrounds and ethnicities and races, right? If all of your friends, if all of your colleagues, if all of your family members are just from one ethnic, racial, or religious group, it can be stifling, right? Diversity, I really do think, is better. It's something that should be celebrated and not simply tolerated. And the the vision of America, the affirmative vision, not just the things we are against on the left, but the things we are for, uh, I think are really powerful, right? A multiracial, multiethnic America in which all places in America have people of all different skin colors and all different cultures and all different backgrounds and all different religions is a much better, more prosperous, more hopeful, more entertaining and fun America than one of segregation, one of dominance of white supremacy, one of dominance of religion over the secular. I believe strongly in religious freedom and I just as strongly believe in non-religious freedom that there should be just as much space in the public square for people who are non-religious. And again, my vision, I saw a taste of it in New York City in my upbringing in the 70s, 80s. I saw a little, even if it was an innocent and naive view, I saw what that could look like where we're celebrating the music and culture and food from people from all over the world. You know, that's a beautiful thing. And that's the America I want to build with you all and with even with people I disagree with, as long as they can celebrate diversity and not celebrate supremacy and segregation. I think we can really make a beautiful, great America one day. Not the right-wing America, but a true multicultural, multiracial, multi-democratic um, you know, America. A true democracy in America that we have never had before. So with that, everybody, if that vision of America suits you and motivates you and inspires you, please share this podcast with family, friends, and colleagues. Rate it. 
subscribe on Apple, iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. And with that, everybody, I hope you are well and strong and you stay safe. Take care.